This podcast contains strong language, details of drug use, violence, recounting of traumatic events and themes which listeners may find upsetting. So this is the very first episode of the Recovery Hub podcast, Life After Addiction. Today's episode is presented by me, Caitlin, from Eternal Media. For our first episode today, we have Marcus Fair, founder of Eternal Media, and we talked about what the Recovery Hub podcast is, what we aim to do, and why we have set it all up in the first place. Marcus talks about how crack and heroin took a hold for 25 years of his life to doing a complete turnaround and he's now living a successful and happy life running his dream eternal media it's pretty inspirational you guys may have noticed that jordan mine and marcus's convo that he refers to other people's episodes that we will be releasing from next week the reason for this is because marcus has recently been so busy running projects here at eternal so i felt really fortunate to have him in the studio for the time i did you know just finally getting to sit down with marcus and properly listen and hear his story it was brilliant the way he just completely changed his life it gives me hope for my future and it was very inspirational it was brilliant i hope you enjoy it as much as i did go for it so I am so pleased that we finally get to do this interview because you are such a busy guy with eternal media and everything that you're doing. But now we finally get to sit down and we can have a chat and get to know you a bit better. Yeah, I've kind of swerved it for as long as I can now. Huh? Yeah, you have. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not a comfortable place for me to be. I'm, I normally do the interviewing, so it's kind of it's new to me to be yeah. sat on this side of it, really. But I have listened to some of your um, podcasts and they're brilliant. Oh, thank they're you. They're really good. Yeah. I learn from the best. So just being in here, being in this environment, like I can be in my like, creative self, you know? Yeah, it's a great space. Oh, it's it? amazing. An amazing outlet for me. Oh, I love that. You love it. Oh, I do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I never thought I'd have the confidence to do something like this. And it just gets better every time I do it. Yeah, me neither. Me neither. See, that's hard for me to believe. Why? Because you just you just seem really cool and confident all the time, you know. Oh, so thin veneer that is. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't last for long. Don't, oh. don't scratch too deep. Yeah, it's, oh, it just comes with doing it. But you get, you know, if you do any job for long enough, it's just. Um, but it's just people. Yeah, you know, it's like getting to know people. I'm genuinely interested in people. I, I'm really, you know, when I'm interviewing, yeah. I really want to know. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it's nosy or just, just just genuinely interested in people's lives and what got them wherever they went and sometimes what got them out of it and um, and just how people get through life and where they've come from, where they've been, where they want to get to, their hopes, their aspirations, their dreams. Yeah. Um, I am fascinated. You know, whenever I'm sat down doing an interview, like, you know, I've got, got my question prepared and I'm often I put that down and we just get into it because you know like a, a conversation's gone another way and if he's gone another way and he's like oh my god and then what happened I need to know yeah you know so I think it really helps if you're generally interested in people and people's stories and and I think you are I think that's what comes over in your podcast yeah I love learning from other people's experience because there's things like you I want to know things and because I, I can take what other people do in their life like daily routines and stuff and 
apply it to myself. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So it is big. I do get big inspiration from meeting people and hearing the stories and doing this type of stuff. See, that that was a big major thought behind the podcast, behind the, the Recovery Hub podcast, was, you know, just sharing that knowledge and experience. Yeah. And, you know, we can all learn of each other, you know, how we just, you know, how we get into our lives, into our new lives, really. And, you know, how, you know, it's just sharing that, that knowledge, how we just get through life and, you know, especially of those who had the day off at school when they taught us about life. And it's, <laughs> it's like, oh, coming out like really unprepared. How do I live? You know, because some of us got on, you know, drugs and alcohol so young yeah. that, you know, we didn't really learn about living. It was just all about the drug and or the drink. And, and I was a gay. Yeah. Definitely. But I want to know about you. So how and when were you introduced to substances and stuff? Were you young? Right. Now, are we talking substances or are we talking behaviours? I know you said substances, yeah. but I don't feel I can talk about my addiction without kind of talking about the behaviours around it first, really. Well, I suppose what I'm really asking is, like, how did you first, like, obviously you know, had the behaviour to make you want to change the way you were feeling? I'm thinking, so yeah, I guess it is the behaviours like that. Yeah, I want to know. Right. Okay. Um, I haven't actually done an interview about this before, and I've <laughs> I've, I've avoided them quite well. <laughs> Until now. <laughs> yeah. I even avoided it in rehab, and I've done like four <laughs> or five of them, and I still managed to avoid these conversations. <laughs> I was always very lucky that my counsellors were very happy to talk about themselves. Yeah. So <laughs> I always got out of talking about me. Because I didn't want to talk about me. Um, but now you're making me. Okay, so <laughs> the further I get away from my drug, yeah, and my drug was predominantly heroin. Um, I've heard some people, you know, say my drug of choice is more. Like, mine wasn't. Mine was, it was heroin. Yeah. Yeah, I did it. I'll go through the pr progression, I guess. But um, the further I get away from my addiction, of to drugs the more i realized my addiction to drugs was nothing to do with drugs it was all to do with obsession yeah yeah and um so i can see the obsessive behavior you know right back when i was a kid you know whether it be food i think i was like a food or chocolate addict before i was ever like a drug addict um I just didn't have the off switch, you know, yeah. even down to like my nan was in Germany and went and she used to, you know, send over these parcels like to, you know, like, and they were the size of this table, you know, I know this, yeah. is, I know this is podcasting, you can't really see the table, but <laughs> it's, you know, it's a fair size table and we'd get these parcels at Easter and at Christmas, just full of German stuff. And, and one thing that sticks out was, um, my nan should always send like uh, you know advent calendars. Yeah. And in um, in Germany, it's before we got them in England in, in the UK, and they they were chocolate, like you know little chocolate advents. <laughs> My sister's two years old. We just fight like cat or dog. Her worst day in her life is what the day I was born. <laughs> My birthday. <Yeah. laughs> she she was having a great life until I came along, <laughs> and um, but it was, we were just at war. 
Yeah. Yeah, for so long. And, and some of the things that like, I can't remember, I remember one year, um, she had, like, I'd got my advent calendar and I did it in within about three minutes. I opened every do. door and yeah, <laughs> 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 I want more. So she was out of her room and I went into her room and I opened all her <gasps> doors ate them all and shut them all. Oh, that's, so, that's wrong. I know. I think it was payback. It was retribution for something. Yeah. You know, um, but I could always justify what I did as well. That's another thing about, you know, being an addict. You're always very good at justifying yeah. your behaviour. Um, so, it, so my behaviours, I didn't have an off switch then really. Whatever I liked, I just kicked the arse out of it until it kicked the arse out of me later on in life. But it was, um, I can remember like food, I could never get enough of, you know, sweet stuff. Um, yeah, still have, I still battle with that. Um, yeah. Computer games, you know, I think um, we, as one of the, the first kids to have a computer, I guess. And I, I just, it's all about that. You know, it's absolutely fixated about, you know, my my um, Spectrum, what's it, Spectrum 48, I think it was. Um, I hope it was that now, some geek's going to pull me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I was always on that. And then, when I was a little bit older, um, the, we, 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 had, we had an arcade in town. I, I grew up in a place called Middlewich in Cheshire, and we had the Alhambra. And uh, and there's this lady in there, in the booth, that gave you the change. Yeah. And um, she didn't care. She she just, like, we were all, you know, went down to school uniform or even younger. And we just put all our dinner money into the into the, the slot machines, into the fruit machines. I just gambled. It was only, <laughs> it was only you know, two peas and ten peas, but it, it was an addiction. Yeah. Right. And I can remember sometimes we used to get the machines and turn them upside down and they just had oh. pots in them where the money dropped into, but with no lids on them. So we tip them upside down and then tip them the right way up and all the money came out the bottom. And she didn't care. And that's, um, so I can remember being obsessed about that yeah. as well. Um, and it just kept going. The, you know, the obsession to always want more of whatever I want, I was really enjoying. Yeah. And then. You know, smoking came into it, I guess, at 12, you know, and um, you're fake smoking at first and someone called you out on it and you did it. You yeah. Know, for the first time, that. blew your head off, you were sick and everything. But then I just kept doing it. I kind of, I kind of made myself like things. Most yeah. of my addictions I didn't like the first time I tried them. Um, but I ended up making myself because I thought it was cool. Yeah. And then by the age of 14, I was quite a good student, really. I was, you know, kind of in the top sets kind of thing. And um, and then I looked around me, like, you know, the other kids in my year. And, and the cool ones were the ones that were getting in trouble all the time. And they seemed to be having the best fun. You know, yeah. I wasn't particularly having a lot of fun. I had my little group of mates, but wasn't particularly having the fun kind of fun they were having yeah. or the cool factor that went along with it and at school it's got to be the same today it's all about the cool and oh yeah it's yeah. all about status yeah. you want to be in the popular group so i realized that the naughty i became the the cool i became you know that i, I kind of went up a couple of rankings yeah. and you know the cooler kids and the harder kids wanted to know me kind of thing you know and you know all that and um and then 
you know, come climbing on the school roof, windows <laughs> through, around, kind of setting off fire hoses and, you know, just being complete pain to the teachers and stuff. And that kind of propels you into some kind of cool thing. And then um, uh, for, and then I, I can remember about 13 or something and uh, we had Grange Hill, right? And we had, um, and we had, um, we had that song that Grange Hill, you know, just say no. You probably don't know it, but there was a character called Zamo, and you know, I guess a lot of people will be nodding right now. They remember Zamo, and him became coming addicted to heroin in, in the storyline of Grange Hill. I feel like it sounds. It does sound familiar. Yeah. So, and and the and the kids from um, from Grange Hill put out this song, "Just Say No." Yeah. Nancy Reagan's word, and so it's like, "No, just say no," and we were all saying, "Yeah," <laughs> we just didn't know where to get it from. So we were trying all sorts. I can remember, I can remember one um, like me and my mate. We were just trying to how to get high. We'd never been high, but wanted to be high. Yeah. Because oh, why we can't? We had this. Oh, our, our drug our drug education was um um was this hippie woman right she was probably mid 40s 50s something like that and um she she got onto stage the whole school turned up she got onto stage and um in this big kind of tie-dye flowery kind of you know big old hippie girl woman and um she got out this box it like 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 a fishing kind of tackle box with lots of different compartments and she opened the lid on it and she goes and um, she pulled out like uh, it's full of plastic drugs you know so she pulled out like a, a bit of cannabis really resin this is cannabis don't take this she put it back into the box oh. and she she went through the spectrum of the drugs around at a time no kind of found this, i said don't do this and i'm going okay she was telling she didn't tell us why not to do this all this right because it was all about death it was all kind of nailed into you if you do drugs you will die yeah right? it's going to kill you so this hippie woman tell us not to do it on stage we had grain jill telling us not to do it and then I kind of ended up hanging around with people older than me. Um, I thought it was cooler, actually. And it was because they did cooler things. So, um, and went up to, went up to um, Scotland with a mate. I was off on a tangent, but it's the first time I tried to, oh, no, no, drop that track a little bit. So we were all trying to get high off legal high, not illegal highs, but at, we couldn't get hold of drugs, drugs, yeah. right, 13, right? And in our town, you just couldn't. We're trying all sorts of experiments. I can remember one lunchtime, we've gone back to, <laughs> back to my mum's house and we'd heard, like, bananas can get you high. I've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But we only had 45 minutes for lunch so, oh. and you had to dry them out and stuff. Yeah. So we scraped out this banana skin and... Um, Put it on plate in microwave. Turned into glue. Like so, we were there trying to smoke banana glue. <laughs> <laughs> Not even sniffing. Uh, yeah, so that didn't really work. Oh. And then, like, um, we came up with another one, like in the middle, of which has a lot of canals. And by the side of the canals, poppies grow. Um, I think we'd seen it on the news like in Afghanistan and all these poppy heads were being sliced. Oh, yeah. And then a few days later, opium was kind of oozing out, this kind of black sticky stuff, which was opium, out of the, the poppy heads before they flower. Um, oh, right. Well, I, I, we know where poppies are. They're by the canal. So we went down by the canal I mean, a couple of, and, we, and we went uh, just with like um, a razor blade and just cut little slits into these poppy heads. And sure enough, a few days later brown gooey stuff had, had come out 
and we, we you know we again we, we smoked it and it smelled like the the perfume opium right oh, no. it smelled like it didn't do anything you feel yeah. anything now nah, i can't feel anything but we we tried it so we we were actively trying to get higher i think yeah. it's more about cool and it being experimental rather than looking for a high we we're just experimenting right? yeah and you know we we're drinking on the park going to the under 18s disco and smoking and stuff like that but it was always about the next thing yeah and then at 14 i remember going up to um to edinburgh and um with my mate his mum lived up there and she had to go to work and she left us in this like tenement kind of block, like high risey kind of thing, um, on the outskirts of Edinburgh. And uh, you know, it's rough as arse, you know, yeah. it's proper, proper like train spotting territory. Really? Yeah, it looked wow. it looked proper like you didn't know it time, you sort of took it in your stride, didn't you? Everyone was friendly enough and she goes, Don't do whatever you want, do whatever you know. She goes, I won't I won't insult the the Scottish um demographic nation by trying to impersonate a Scots person, but um, she was, you know, say, do what you want, don't go downstairs. Uh, oh, why is that? Why, can, why can't we go and say hello to the person downstairs? So the minute she goes to work, we're downstairs. Don't, don't. We're not allowed to talk to you and we don't know why. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> right. So the first thing, so and there's this guy called Raimi inside, yeah, and, oh, come in, lads, yes, come in. And he goes, you ever had a hot knife? What's a hot knife? So he was the look, you know, he was like the drug dealer in the, in the area kind yeah. of thing. That's why we shouldn't go around there. So the first thing he's doing is offering two 14 year old kids a hot knife, which consisted of like on an old battered gas cooker. He put two knives on it because I'm going, what's a hot knife? I'll show you. And he put a cut off pot, bo- pot bottle yeah. in his mouth. And he got his two knives, put a little bit of weed on it, put them together, and plumes of smoke came off it, and he just bunged up the end of the bottle. And he goes, inhale, like, <gasps> and it was like just inhaling razor blades. Oh, my it, God. It was, and, uh, you know, I couldn't take it for a long, and just coughed my guts up, but, wow. You know, <laughs> I felt the high yeah. very quickly, and... Uh, this was in the days of, oh God, what was in the chart? I can't remember what was in the chart. The Only Way Is Up. Um, and Brosser in the charts. So it must have been like, I don't know, kind of 89, no, 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 eight, 86, somewhere around there. I don't yeah. Know. Um, so it was before all the strong weed of today, you know, like the really kind of, you know, skunk and cheese and all that. Yeah. It wasn't like that. It was just, you know, it was a bit of resin. And it made you laugh and it made you empty the fridge. And I liked the feeling because it was different to what I'd had before. Yeah. So, you know, got back to Cheshire and you couldn't get I didn't really see it for a bit bit of time. But as soon as it came, you know, saw it again, I went for it. And I became addicted to weed. And, you know, I worked for, I worked for my dad at the time. Kind of worked, um, my family had a... Um, welding company and if i were to see my family I kind of works alongside them a lot of the time um you know, my dad had me kind of welding and cutting steel at you know the age of seven you know before oh. health and safety was invented it's just what you know yeah, fam- yeah family totally. company that's what you do you just help out well and, that's it yeah you, know, you work side by side with your family really and um i can remember um I had to go for a smoke at lunch uh, every break, like ten o'clock break in the toilet, having a smoke of weed, and and it was like throughout the day. Last thing at night, I'd have weed. First thing in the morning, I'd have weed the minute before I even got out of bed. Yeah. So, and um, 
so it's kind of progressed progressed into that is these kind of things you want me to talk about yeah yeah so and i guess a progression after that would be um acid so i could drop four micro dots first time i tried acid on oh my god (laughs) wow yeah it is um that was a very different experience yeah. again, and it, it was crazy. I think a few of us got arrested that night because we thought our arms had dropped off, and just, <laughs> you know, and police weren't really de- used to dealing with it back then. They just thought some of us were drunk or whatever. But um, the acid kind of evolves into going out um, at illegal raves, you know, when when all that kind of um, Manchester kind of kicked off and the warehouse rave started yeah, that happening. rave culture. Yeah, yeah, and we were kind of in their early doors. Um, before Ease came out, you just went on like a, on acid and speed kind of thing. So the next thing that came in was speed and that that kind of kept you going all night. The, the acid would give you, you know, kind of where your head was with other people. Yeah. Uh, you know, and which with the music was designed, you know, the blips and beeps just to meant you know, just crazy nights. Wow. Crazy nights. And then then the speed would just help you go all night. And then, um, yeah, Ease came out and that was a massive change there. It was like, oh, wow. And then, you know, I felt I'd landed when I found Eve. We all did. You know, it was just like the most amazing times. I I wouldn't want to do it again. I don't regret a minute of it. Yeah. It was, you know, this was when drugs were fun. I get that, yeah. And... You know, I don't advocate anyone taking drugs, of course not. But if they weren't fun, we wouldn't have kept doing them, right? Exactly. So at some point they were fun and then they weren't. So I'm talking before I knew the score, before any of it. Um, And I kind of, um, we were going out everywhere, me and, you know, a few of my mates and, we were very much booking the trend in our town. We were very much becoming the outcast because we were going to these clubs, because we were going raving. We weren't, we definitely weren't cool to the people that we start drinking with, and, you know, because we'd gone to this kind of subculture of, of, you know, illegal substances and clubbing and stuff. They, they, when they were still kind of, you know, out in the, in the pisshead clubs, yeah. you know, with their duck ties on and, you know, dancing to Leaf of Andros. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. We were just like up till like Sunday night off our faces in kind of forests and with sound machines got just off it. Mental. Yeah. Crazy convoys and, and all the rest of it. And, and then, oh, that, that all changed like about a year later because they, you know, all the pissers got into it and they all wanted to know us all of a sudden and yeah. wanted to know which clubs we were going to because we were going up and down the country. We were going, I don't know, we are going um, Leeds and Birmingham and London, Historian. We were just getting about every weekend yeah. and our kind of, our go-to, if we were kind of staying local-ish, was Shelley's Laser Dome in Stoke, which was just amazing. Um and, you know, part of our journeys took us to a weekend uh, in, up near Kilmarnock in 91 uh, called Technodrome. Technodrome Rave. And we're dead naive. You know, we were young. We were, how old was I? I was 17. Dead naive. And, you know, weren't, wasn't, none of us were earning a lot of money. Um, 
And, you know, expensive weekends. So we've, you know, we, we had a mate who could get us a few, you know, like a number of ease. I wouldn't say a weight. I'd just say, you know, I could get us 40 or 50 ease, a tenner each kind of thing. And we take them up to Scotland. Um, and then they, we could sell them up there for 25 quid. You know, kind of couple of mates had met a couple of lads on holiday who were from up that way. And they, you know, Glasgow and they could get rid. So, okay, let's do that. Rent the car out because all our cars were knackered. Went up to Kilmarnock, had a belting weekend. Um, you know, I was selling a bit of speed as well. Um, and we all had, I don't know, 15, 20, I think it's 15 easy. Just pay for the weekend fuel you know we weren't big dealers and and um i went to this technodrama rave and it was amazing you know i had circus tents and you know just um fairground rides and loads of different techno tents and everything going on and it was a belting weekend it just you know it was really good and um you know, I'd sold all my ease and a couple of other mates had sold all theirs. And, but what we mates just ate too many and he didn't sell the rest of them. Oh, God. So, so on the way back down, we got all the way back down to Middlewich and uh, got stopped at like oh, 3am on a Monday morning and our little town, Middlewich, nothing happens, you know, and... We had a Range Rover just cut in front of us and then another one behind us oh. and then two squad up either side. And that doesn't happen. You know, no. it wasn't a pull. It wasn't like just, you know, let's have a look at your driving license kind of thing. Or, you know, what are you lads doing? Like, this was a bust, right? Jeez. So it turns out we think that um, our dealer might have had some heat on him and he kind of threw our names in that was happening. And they, they'd missed us on the way because we were in a different car. And they were waiting on the motorway bridge for us coming back down. And yeah, they ambushed us and, you know, we couldn't really get rid of anything. And we mate had to start his ease on him and a few wraps of whiz. And we, and we got, yeah, they got caught and we thought, we were so naive. You know, instead of one taking us, yeah, they're all mine. You know, mates had nothing to do with it. Instead of one of us doing that, like, we thought, oh, we'll divvy it out. So, like, threes each. Like, that's just personal, right? Well, back then, they back then it was they hammered you. I think it was around Leah Betts died around that time, sort of thing, or, or some quite prominent person had died off ease. Yeah, and the, the judge was just throwing the book at everyone. That must and have been terrifying for you, though. My, my, being such a young age as well. It's my first offence. I got a year. Wow. I'd never been in trouble with the law. Um, I was just naive, you know. I'd I'd been driving down because Johnny was. Oh, I shouldn't say his name, but it's too late now. <laughs> but, but he was too wrecked, and um, and I was more worried about when we got pulled up. I was more wor- worried that I wasn't the name on the driver on the on the higher form rather than anything else. Yeah. You know, I thought I'd get, be in more trouble about my driving license than having ease in the car. That's yeah. how naive we were. Well, that's it, though, because you were young. <laughs> So we all got a kind of year, and Bloody that's hell. a dead long time when you're 17 to be banged up, first offence. And this is when um, jails, like young offenders, had just switched from being borstals. And they, so the regime hadn't changed. There wasn't any rehabilitative culture. There wasn't any kind of... Um, there, there wasn't... It, it was the most violent place you could ever imagine. It was like, it was just... I mean, I went, I went to Hindley with, with my mate and um, we, 
our, our cell was like on the top floor on one of the wings and it was overlooking the prison, uh, not the, overlooking the, yeah, the prison hostel. And about every 45 minutes, there was a screw walking a kid over to the hospital wing with towels wrapped around their arms with just blood pissing out of them because there were so many suicide attempts, like all day long, people just going in with slit wrists. And we hadn't seen anything like this. This isn't the world we'd grown up in. You know, we're kind of backwardish little town, middle of nowhere sort of thing, quite wholesome really. And then all of a sudden we're thrown into... um, a crazy jail didn't even have windows we just had grills like there's no perspex in there on the moors and just freezing all the time and um like rain came in and and yeah all of a sudden we're in this world with a load of you know city lads that grew up in liverpool and manchester and if you weren't from liverpool or manchester you were getting your head kicked in a wow. lot and if you weren't getting your head kicked in by the Scousers or the Manx, you were getting your head kicked in by the Screws. You used to roll you up in these blue crash mats and just beat death out of you. That is so terrifying. It, yeah, I mean, you had these, you know, like PP9 batteries, like big square batteries in, in socks. And people were just getting, like, their, their, their jaws snapped all the time. Bloody hell. Yeah, and uh, we, we, we ended up getting shipped out into another jail. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, what we had agreed on before we all went to jail was we're not doing the hard stuff. This is where people get onto the hard stuff. We'd all agreed that Coke was probably our limit, that, in fact, Coke was our hard limit. Yeah. We're not going any harder than Coke, even when I had Coke for the first time. A party I shouldn't have really had at me, folks. <laughs> Hell's Angels and everything. Everyone turned up. In. Wow. My, on the side note, my 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 parents had a B and B in Middlewich. It was a big house what we grew up in, and my dad bought it as a condemned building and just did it up. And it was a big house in the end, bit like quite a lot of ground on it. And um, and my mum had all these business cards for the B&B just on the side. I mean, my ex-mike had been giving them out in a club all night. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I thought, I don't know, seven, eight hundred people turned up at our house. <laughs> and he just destroyed it. Um, but, yeah, I think that's where I had coke for the first time. But we'd all agreed not to do more than that. Yeah. And um, so me and my mate didn't do that in jail. But my other two, because we were we were only 17, 18, so we went to Young Offenders. Whereas my other two mates, they were over 21, um, just. So they'd gone to, like, cons. Um, yeah, they'd gone to cons jail, so over 21, like proper jail. And they got into it there. Oh. So when we all came out, um, they kept disappearing after clubs, and we didn't know what was happening. We, we, we didn't know what was happening, and... Until one Friday night, we went round unannounced to make one rate's house, and they were both there with foil running something down the foil. And we, you know, we, we had a kind of good idea what it was. Yeah. We were trying to make out it was cannabis oil, and we weren't having that. No. And then I was disgusted. Oh, come on, come on, Dave, let's go. You know, we, let's go pub, meet you later. You know, we're not into this. And mate, Nate was a grade A student. He was like. He, he, he was the hardest kid in school. He was, you know, athletic. He was, um, he, he, he was going places. Yeah. He had his job lined up, at, you know, Brunner Mond, a big chemical company, and that was a good job, you know, sound job. So he really had his head screwed off on. And he goes, no, let's try. Let's have a go. 
And for Nath to say that, it's like, oh, if Nath thinks it's all right. Then it must be okay. Can't be too yeah. bad, can it? Like, Nath really got his head screwed on. Nath had a go. I had a go. Nath never tried heroin again. I never stopped. Wow. I just, that was me gone. It took me. Um, and it took me for 25 years. What was the appeal? Like, what did that feel for you, you know, like the first time you did heroin? And if you don't mind me asking, like, what made you go back for more after that first time? Like, I didn't like it. No. Do you remember how I said earlier? Everything you have, yeah, you, you, made, you, you made yourself like. Yeah. And it was the same with oh. heroin. I didn't particularly like it. It didn't taste nice. Um, I kind of taste a bit like fish or something. Yeah. Um, I, the effect made me nauseous. I didn't, I wasn't sick. Like one of the other lives was, but I wasn't sick. But I I felt I wanted to be. Um, yeah, I didn't particularly enjoy it. <clears throat> oh, we just paused there for a minute because um, our, our lovely landlord was scraping the floor outside. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think there's a bit of work, noise reduction work to do on it. Um, so why did I have it again? Yeah, and when did you realise, like, you're, you're, you were addicted or, like, it was an issue for you, you know, like, oh, I've got a problem. Right. Well, I, the reason why I had it again was because... We used to, you know, we went clubbing all the time. And we were always looking for like that kind of um, perfect come down after the the stimulants of the, um, take those headphones off, uh, you know, after the stimulants of the, of the ease and the speed and, yeah. you know, having your head in a bass bin in a club all night and just like, and we'd always done it like at come down parties and they've always felt really dirty. You know, you'll just be trying to smoke yourself down off weed. Yeah. And um, and we had, a, we had a mate for, who worked for Security Corps, and that some weekends he'd come over with, like, a coffee jar full of green eggs, which were tenazepam sleepers, which helped a lot. But, um, and these come-down parties, they were nasty, and you'd hallucinate off whatever you're coming down off, and they just went on for hours and hours and hours into a Sunday, and you just felt dirty after him. Yeah heroin was the off switch it was like you were high from the stimulants using the speed you took a few lines of heroin off it's like a it was like a fire switch on the side of your head just pulling pulled down off normal it was the wow. silver bullet for for ease it was what i was looking for for sure it's what my mates were looking for yeah. didn't have to go down to those come down parties or if we did which we did because it's still our mates, the other people, but we, you know, always go and find the toilet, the bathroom, and we go and like cane a bag of heroin after the club in there, and then you know, put our head on straight. And then we were going out, so we we're going out and her having heroin after as the come down, and then all of a sudden we were going out less. You know, instead of going out like on a Friday night and a Saturday night, and then you know, kind of using Sunday just to come down and go to the pub. We weren't going out on that Friday night. We're taking heroin instead, you know. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden we weren't going on that Saturday night either. We were having heroin instead. And then 
Sunday drinking wasn't happening anymore. We were having heroin instead. And then <laughs> that was creeping into the week. That was happening on a Monday, you know. And then, and when did I realise I had a problem? Well, that happened for a few weeks that we were having it pretty much every day. Um, and then, well, we were having it every day. And then one day, I didn't see my mates. For whatever reason, I haven't deliveries for my dad or something, or didn't have the money or something. And I felt poorly. And I had sniffles, and my joints were hurting, and I just felt horrible, and I was sweating, but, but I was cold, and I was still sweating, and I hadn't felt like this before. It yeah. felt like really bad flu. And um, one of them came around for me, I said, like, I don't feel I'm not coming out, and, and he goes, oh yeah, I've got some, and I had a line, and I had a line of, of gear, and all of a sudden I felt well. Everything was all right, and my heart just sank. The penny dropped. It. Oh my god, I'm addicted. I just knew, and that oh. was that was quite a short time after trying it for the first time. I was addicted to heroin, physically addicted, possibly not mentally addicted, which is a harder one, but definitely physically yeah. addicted, and kind of carried on with it. And then you know, later later years tried you know kind of um crack as well came into it yeah. I thought you know but um yeah that's that is do you know what I'm just shocked not shocked but like that just brought me back you know and that feeling when you just like your heart sinks and your stomach feels sick you know like you're on like a roller coaster or something and when you've like wow I'm addicted like I had different substance of choice like but when that moment happened for me as well I know that just brought me right back to just got shivers then you know it's brought me right back to when I realised when I was like whoa I'm addicted like and there's that old um, I've had it throughout my life that you know kind of I'm not you know and people have said well you knew what you're getting into you know you know there's enough information even back then that you know, you're going to get addicted to heroin because, yeah, okay, everyone knows people get addicted to heroin. But it's that old cliche, it'll never happen to me. Yeah. <laughs> it'll never happen to me. You know, me and my mates, we're not heroin addicts. We're just clubbers. Uh, you know, we're ravers that take a bit of heroin after the club. Yeah. We're, we're not smackheads. You know, we're not, you know, getting dragged out of toilets. Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're kind of, um, we're not homeless on the streets. We're not smackheads. We're not, we're not like that. So it's all that. It's all that. It never happened to us, and then it did happen to all of us, apart from knife. Happened to all of us, you know. Yeah. So, and uh, by the age of twenty-one, I'd absolutely written myself off. This, this is my life now. This, this is, this is, this is what's down for me, you know. And <laughs> and that hippie woman that got on the stage, and you know, our drug education yeah. in our school. <laughs> don't take this. This is don't take this. You'll die. Don't take that. Yeah. And that's why I carried on with the weed as well, actually. You know, because once I took weed, for, I know I missed this bit, but once I took weed for the first time and, and it didn't kill me, yeah. she lied. <laughs> they, they all lied. Drugs yeah. don't kill. You know, I've tried drugs. It didn't kill me. Right, let's go for it. Yeah. There's that old saying, weed's a gateway drug. It absolutely was for me. Yeah. Yeah. This didn't kill me. What is next? Well, all those necks finally got me to heroin and crack. But, um, oh, I can't remember 
was going to say. You, well, you just upped your, your drug taking, didn't you? It went from, like, you know, taking, like, the party drugs on the party rave scene and then you're taking the heroin more frequently and then, like, in the club it was ecstasy and speed but now it's, like, the heroin is taking over. So it just you just got more, like, you just amped the level, didn't you? And I went for help. Yeah, I can't remember if a family got me to go for help. I, you know, I kept it secret as long as possible. But um, so that that hippie woman that was on the stage. So a couple of years after her being on the stage and me as a kid, you know, sat on the arse in assembly listening to her. With me and mate, she be, she she ended up becoming my drug counsellor. No way. Yeah, she oh was. My she God. was back then. They'd okay, I sound dead old, but back then they kind of sent you packing with like liters of methadone. You know, it wasn't just, you know, a daily script that you popped off down to the chemist every day for your 30 mil or something. They sent me, every week they're sending me home with about a litre of methadone to just self-administer. Yeah. And, you know, that... I, I can't believe how little we've progressed, actually. We still give people methadone. I never understood why seemingly intelligent people like doctors and stuff would give me... Th- wanted me to have their drugs instead of my drugs when their drugs were way worse than my drugs. Yeah. You know, and they put, put this horrible green sticky chemical inside me that just that just took my life as much as heroin took it. Yeah. You know, it just, yeah, just stripped me, stripped me and destroyed my bones and my teeth. It's insidious. Yeah. And, um, it prolonged my agony for me. And I know it helps a lot of people, actually. You know, I heard Emma's interview and, you know, she it changed her life. For me, it didn't. It, yeah. It, 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 it compounded the misery. Everyone's different, though, aren't they? Yeah. But, like, before you got help for the first time, I would, how did you fund your habit and your addiction? Like, how was you getting, like, the heroin and that? Because... I was you keeping it up, I suppose, is what I mean. Well, I was working for my dad. Um, and I kind of all way, you know, all went on that, really, in the early days. You yeah. Know, I mean, I was living for the weekend anyway, so I was very used to spending all my money on a Friday and Saturday night, um, you know, on, on clubbing and ease and speed. and So it, it always went on on the weekend. Yeah. And I just went in, into that. So I guess in the early days, I was funding it legally, through through work, um, yeah, and kind of kept it within those tolerances, really. You know, and um, don't think I was dealing. I think I was doing anything like that. Like that. You know, I kind of um, I, yeah. After the jail sent, I knew I didn't want to go back to jail. Yeah, after being exposed to what you were exposed. The jail's to. not for me. No, <laughs> no. It wasn't my last time I went there, but it wasn't for me. That's mad. So you've got help for the first time how long did that last well I was just you know I was helping what well, I mean they were just giving me more drugs so their help was giving me more drugs yeah so, what so you, I was taking heroin and I was taking methadone so it kind of doubled my habit really so when, when did things get really bad for you then I suppose that's what I want to know <sighs> when did it get bad for you like Oh, there's different... Like a rock bottom, should we say? Oh, I've had so many. I don't... 
that's difficult because we're trying to 25 years of addiction you know kind of and you know to heroin is um heroin and crack for 25 years it takes you places that um that no human being should ever have yeah. to go to it's it's the most condensed what do you call it distilled misery you could ever think that no human being should ever ever have to endure I'm not trying to be dramatic it was no i totally it's like understand. i was living on the underbelly of the underbelly of society it was my life was way worse than anything i saw in train spotting you know it's just um it was dealing it was not for any kind of profit everything went on drugs you know if i made two grand in a day i, had, I took two grand in a day you know of, of drugs it was um because i had no off switch yeah there was no off there was no satisfaction you know and it's unsurprising really because you know they in my opinion they're called designer drugs because they are designed to make you want to have more right yeah. so it's a, you know it's the kind of whole endorphin thing you know you get hit and it's a pleasure pain thing the, the come down is too bad that you don't want to not have it and with heroin you have to keep taking it regularly throughout the day and your tolerance builds up so you need more of it yeah. every day and then with crack you know it's like instant addiction it's like ridiculous I, you know there are people that and myself actually there's things i do on for crack that i'd never just do for smack you know kind of um um yeah it's, it, it's you just become incredibly desperate and lose everything you know um, i think a particularly bad time was i don't know early 20s um living in crew selling above a shop um and it, it was it was it was a very desperate time it, there was a lot of drugs there was a lot of crime involved um uh, but I don't know. I mean, was it as worse as you know as bad as when I was totally homeless? For, I was homeless for a long time. I was living in a multi-story car park in Bangor. Um, was it as bad as I went to jail again? I mean, how did you survive all this? Though this is what I, I suppose. What I want to know is how did you survive in that act of addiction? Like, how, how did you survive? Like, how did you? carry on you know the thing is you don't get all the misery in one day no it's like if you know you know what drugs were fun yeah. right and then they weren't and then when they weren't you don't get all the misery that day when it suddenly doesn't turn into being fun anymore and you know the addiction happens and then you can't stop um like the choice is taken away from you in addiction that's um that's what i noticed about rehab you go in without a choice whether or not you use and you come out with a choice yeah that's what i noticed about rehab um it's it's subtle how it comes in and takes over your life if if everything was as bad as it ever was ever going to get on day one you'd never take it again right totally but, but it kind of creeps in slowly and 
it, all this horrible stuff that is happening, you know, like, I mean, I've been, I've been stabbed, I've been shot at, um, I've been kidnapped a number of times, I've been, you know, absolutely living shit kicked out of me, living, living shit kicked out of me, I've been pulled out of toilets across the UK, overdoses, I've died twice, I've had paramedics bring me back to life, um, I've done multiple, multiple overdoses, some on purpose, you know, you save up yeah. for, I used to save up, you save up on gyrodo, I'd try and overdose, me. you know, my life was that horrible, um, you know, I'd, I'd try and overdose. That's terrible. You know, it was two chickens, like, jump off a bridge or slit my wrists or anything like that, but I certainly took a lot more drugs in, in a needle than I ever thought I could take. Yeah. And, um... I guess at the end of my using, um, I was taking a cocktail, I think, you know, it's different words for it, um, hot and cold, snowball, and that's taking heroin and crack cocaine in the same needle and injecting that. And at the strength I had it, it was like tar, it was so thick. And if my eyes weren't rolling in the back of my head and I was having like an epileptic fit, I'm not epileptic. If that's what it was doing to me, if, it, if I wasn't having a seizure, I thought I'd got ripped off by the dealer. And there wasn't really anywhere to go from that. It was oh like, God. well, you know, and, and, you know, you only die a couple of times. And it's only because I, I guess now... I wasn't very happy about how paramedics bring me back, yeah. you know, resuscitating me and, you know, putting Narcan into me and kicking all the drugs out of me and going into instant rel. I wasn't very happy about it and hospital stays and all the rest of it. Um, but it becomes normal. It becomes every day. Yeah, it's like, yeah. it's just part of the day. You know, I'm going to get nicked today. If you go to the police cells today, it's just part of your day. You know, so what happens. Um I didn't go without drugs very often. I was very good at getting drugs. It was, um, and nothing else would do. Like some of my mates, if they couldn't score whatever, you know, couldn't get them, they'd go have a bottle of whiskey. That wasn't me. No. <laughs> I'd travel to Milton Keynes or something like that to go and get what I, I wouldn't stop until I got it. Yeah. I was very like, well, yeah, that's not going to do what I needed to do. So, um, so how do you get through it? I guess you don't think about it all the time. It's all about the the drug and getting it, and then finding somewhere to do it. And you know, yeah. and then it is like a ritual, isn't it? Everything's like it's you've got like a little routine and your yeah. like little ritual of how you do things. Yeah, and I became very very solo addict in the early days. Yeah. It was kind of you know after work, me and my mate, you know, grab the works van and go up to Winsford and score, and then call it a Friday special and we'd go down by somewhere pretty down by a river and just sit there for a few hours smoking smack yeah and you know and it was nice it was idyllic sunny days yeah. and you know what and that's where my head takes me to whenever I think sometimes I'll get oh my god you know oh I could just do that it takes me to those days yeah. you know the rose tint is specs when <laughs> when it was quite a social thing to do and worked hard and it was a little treat on a Friday you know, take me to that. It won't take me to fucking overdosing in the in the town toilets, being dragged out by by strangers, and you know, or you know, being found by family even worse. Yeah. You know, you know what I did to my family? Like, wow. What was the relationships like with your family? You know, when they found out about <sighs> your addiction and 
you got help for the first time, you know. Um, what was the relationship like with your family? Like, well, it, was, it was new to all of us, you know. There's there no... Um, I don't know, I can't, you know, what, what do you do? You find out somebody you love is like addicted to heroin. It's heroin. Yeah, it's heroin. It's heroin. It doesn't get any worse, does it? No. Yeah, it certainly <laughs> didn't. Man. It's, it's the worst thing, heroin. And I think, you know, I was probably too far out of it to even consider what they were going through. You know, it's like they must have gone through disbelief disappointment absolute panic um you know and just not wanting that to happen to their son yeah you know you, you wouldn't want it for anyone would you and no so and probably in fact long term or even short term that feeling of absolutely absolute helplessness i'm very much a person of if someone's around me is suffering or needs help, I'll fix it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll find a way and I'll fix it for them. You know, that's what I want to do. You know, I want to make life better for people. I want to make their people's lives better. I want to, if I, if there's something I can do and make a problem go away, I'll do it. And, you know, I'll put a lot of energy into making that happen. And my, my folk must have been the same, you know, just wanted to fix it and couldn't. Yeah. You know, so there's whole, there's all that, that whole, oh God, it must have been years of frustration and just having that in the family all the time. And there'd be like massive periods of my life where I just go missing. And I think I'd be protecting my family. You know, okay, I'm just going to take myself away from my family and they won't see, you know, just so, probably make things worse, you know, the worry yeah. about not knowing. But, um, I didn't want them to see how bad I was. Yeah. And, you know, it turns out in rehab that I was protecting my addiction as well. Yeah. You know, because we're very protective over our addictions. And I think we always kind of dress it up as, oh, I'm protecting other people. Well, it's the biggest fear, isn't it? The fear of being found out. But really, everyone knew, except for us. Do you know what I mean? Everyone knows, but you and... Yeah. Oh, did I not know that everyone knew? The biggest fear of being found out. Everyone knew. Yeah, but so my my using was very solitary. Yeah, very. I won't say lonely because I had heroin and that's all I needed. Yeah, I didn't need friends. I didn't need. Well, I don't know if I needed family. I just didn't have them around, you know, because I didn't want them to see. It's embarrassing and shameful. I think that's the whole thing about addiction. So shameful. And I think back now, why is it so shameful? Why is it so ashamed? Because. Why and why are we always surprised that people get addicted to addictive substances? Of course we're going to get addicted. They're yeah. addictive. But in my head, it's like a lot of people's heads, it's, oh, right, they're weak, they're, they're kind of, I'm not a weak person. Right? Yeah. They're, you know, they're weak, they can, they're, they're not strong enough not to do it or, or whatever. And it's like, well, of course I'm going to get heroin. Of course I'm going to get addicted. I think what's the stat like? 97%, 97% of all people who try heroin become addicted yeah. to heroin. So why am I so surprised? But there's still a lot of shame. There was a lot of shame. There was a lot of guilt. Yeah. So I guess because I, so I didn't want to have to see that, I, you know, kept myself away from family, kept myself away from everybody. 
You know, didn't have anyone close, didn't need anyone, had heroin, that's all I needed. That's it, yeah. had, I had two emotions to go with it. I had happy, got heroin, unhappy, not got heroin. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember in the last rehab, they gave me an emotions chart because I didn't know what I was feeling. <laughs> it was like the whole, the whole rehab knew what I was feeling a couple of days before I could figure it yeah. out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> being there. <laughs> Yeah, and no, they gave me a bit of, you know, a bit of paper. Oh, what you, go through this, see what you feel, okay. <laughs> um, so, I don't know, it was all bad and it, and it became all normal. Getting kidnapped, having police spotted planes up in the sky and looking for you and having been taken away at gunpoint having like the 4 3 planks of wood around the back of your head and um, being stabbed and being ripped off and you know not don't feel like a victim not victim don't feel no. like a victim you know the shitty things I've done there's a lot shittier things that happened to me um, and that's just addiction and I think it's terrifying when it actually does start to become normal when that becomes your new normality every day that's when that's your day it's terrifying yeah yeah oh, come on. do you know what my rock bottom is was what? every morning <laughs> every morning for 25 years was my rock bottom because I'd lie there in bed and um, wherever that bed be or do like a mate's sofa or a car park or whatever it is and before I opened my eyes, and this could be like four o'clock in the afternoon, because I wouldn't really, there's no point of doing anything until my dealer came on, because I wasn't, I wasn't entertaining the world until I knew I could get my drug. Yeah. So, and it's just that oh, sinking feeling. It's like your heart drops, like your stomach drops every morning just before you open your eyes and it's like oh god everything i did yesterday i've got to do again today all oh. Oh, that shit i went through yesterday all oh, that running around or robbing or dealing or dodging the cops or manipulating or you know and then even when you've got your money you know it's north wales and cheshire it wasn't that easy to score all the time yeah you know, it's not like being in a big city and you know there's those different places it's like the big city came to us you know and we had to wait so and then you gotta wake up in the morning i've got to do all that again today oh no i've got to do all that again today it's hard being in every own. morning so that was me rock every morning was me rock but without sounding dramatic, I, I do remember how that felt. Oh no, it's so really, really. It's Groundhog Day, isn't it? Yeah, so, totally. Yeah, and I think I think the general view of addicts are that we're dropouts, that that we're I don't know lazy, yeah, failure, lazy, dropout. Um, all the rest of it, um, I didn't have a day off for 25 years. Well, that's it, yeah. Didn't have a sick day. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a holiday. I didn't have a bank holiday. I didn't have a birthday. I didn't have Christmas day off, Boxing Day or New Year's Day. Every day I was an addict. Every yeah. day I had to go and make money. Every day I had to score multiple times a day. 
don't want to feel, you know, I'm not saying this up, you know, kind of getting everyone to, anyone to empathize with addicts. You know, I'm glad you can't. I'm glad, it, you know, if, if, you, if you're listening to this and you, you can't understand, I hope you never can. Yeah. You know, I <laughs> would never wish addiction on anyone, but, you know, that's, that's the, the thing. It's Groundhog Day. Every day is the same. Just yeah. different locations and different people in it. And yeah. So when did you finally decide to get clean? Every day. <laughs> no, but like what led you to this decision? Like I'm sick of being Bill Murray and Groundhog Day, then nothing and all. Oh, it wasn't a decision. What the fuck am I doing? It was an opportunity. I had the decisions every day. Well, how, well, how did that, let me rephrase it's that. Like, how did that opportunity? Well, no, it's a good question. You know, what, what kind of, you know, what, what was the turning point? What was, the, you know, the straw broke the camel's back. Yeah. I wanted to be clean for decades. You know, it, it wasn't about not wanting to. A lot of fear. And, um, you know, the, the, I think what keeps you in addiction off, off heroin is the cold turkey and the fear of that. And even if you do manage to sort it out through whatever means, if that's just like a cold turkey, you know, somewhere, um, it's, you know, what do you do after that? And like, you get back on it. But, you know, I'd wanted to be clean for years and I tried, I tried, uh, you know, a number of detoxes. I did loads of like home detoxes kind of thing and loads of white knuckling it and, never lasted of course it wasn't it wasn't treatment yeah i mean know of anyone that can do it without going to rehab absolutely don't know how they do it you know and um you know i've done a number of rehabs it turns out they weren't really rehabs they were like hostels but i didn't know they the kind of the literature was about rehab so i hadn't really been to one as really and i went then the last one i went to um i had to wait for funding so in uh, drug addiction, I feel is different to alcohol addiction because it's a lot cheaper. Alcohol, it doesn't really take you to the same places as generally. It doesn't take you to the same depths as heroin addiction does just because of pure desperation about the cost of it and the crime you have to do to actually get it. Yeah. Um, as alcohol is a lot cheaper, you know, it's horrible. I've, you know, the, how you die off alcohol is horrible. You know, bleeding out of every orifice is absolutely a horrible, horrible way to go. My heart goes out. Um, but I just think heroin is more of a Russian roulette because, you know, when you're on heroin, the next hit you can have could kill you. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing, you know, if I'd be cut with something that you don't have any tolerance for or um, you get it wrong or for whatever reason. And the know, needles you, as well. You're like, you know, you... You're not, I feel like I'm primarily I'm an alcoholic. Um but just from what I know, like I feel like there's a lot more risks with you know, like drugs, you know, like heroin and crack. Like you're you're putting yourself at a lot more risk, I feel like, because of the factors. Yeah, I got I got off quite easy. I came out of it for for the life I've had, I quite came out of it quite unscathed. Didn't have any horrible blood boiling diseases yeah. or anything. I was probably I was too too selfish to say to share drugs really, but um <laughs> you know, and haven't really got that many track marks I got off you, but too bad. But with um no addicts coming out of addiction and paying for their own treatment in a rehab. That's not happening. No. You know, no, no, you know, in heroin addiction, you don't have money. You don't have like, you know, a few grand a month to spend on a rehab. So you have to wait for funding from your authority and you have to jump through a lot of hoops. 
And um, I went to a couple of places and they said, um, oh, you have to be clean when you come here. I said, if I could fucking do that, I wouldn't need you. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, what are you on about? Why do I need to be clean before I come to you? That's the whole point. I can't get clean, so I have to come to you. So I was like, my God. And there was like all these barriers put them away and then all these jumps, these hoops I had to jump through. And yeah. And um, so it just wasn't the opportunity. It wasn't that I didn't want to get clean. Um, it's just that... I tried in the community. I tried many, many times. I just couldn't do it on my own. Yeah. And and I've done it so long. I was just, it was not a chance. I could do it without a rehab. And I couldn't get funding. The services washed their hands of me. They'd written me off. Absolutely wouldn't engage. And I wasn't like I'm not a violent person. I'm just, just absolutely hopeless addict. And yeah. they just... You know, that wrote me off. What if you do with me? Um, over a number of years, and then, um, you know, I've had an army of counsellors and stuff, but was a, you know, Julie was the last one, she was really good. And, and then um, Tony L actually helped get me on, get me funding. Yeah. He, you know, he's, he, you'll hear a podcast about it. Yeah. Tony's ace. Tony's brilliant. I met Tony in 2005 in a, in a rehab and down in Colwyn Bay. And, um, yeah, so I was known, I've known him since then. And we'd known each other. And then, so, like, um, it took me two and a half years to get funding. And I ended up doing another prison sentence while I was waiting for funding. So I had to start again and stuff. But Tony, Tony helped me with that, with that him and Aid, who you're going to be interviewing oh, as well. yeah. And they, they were like on the area planning board kind of thing. Um, so in North Wales, we've got an area planning board and they they kind of um, commission monies for different things, some recovery, some addiction, some, some thing. And they're, they're amazing people, actually. And um, they wouldn't give it me, so I had to become a case study. So they wouldn't know it was me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I wasn't a safe bet. I wasn't a good bet for having like thirty grand spent on my on my rehab, and um, and so the anomaly. I had to do reports wherever I was every now and again. Tony gets just writes a little thing, tells where you're up to. You know, writes a few paragraphs, a couple of pages of A4, so he can present it to the the area planning board. And you know, and my life was deteriorating and quite even more so. And I was just being honest. It was quite desperate letters, but it's just being honest about where I was and yeah. stuff. And um, and I kept doing that for months. And eventually, through a lot of kind of work from Aid and Tony, I got funding, and I got into re. I got into. I had to, couldn't do the detox I wanted. I had to go to. Um, had to go to a place that was like. I can only describe it as a really run-down travel lodge with lots of sex, drugs and alcohol. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, that, that was... I, I'm sure it was different nowadays, but, you know, I've been there a number of times and it hadn't changed and there's people just openly smoking weed in there and that and, like, drugs and alcohol coming through the through the windows at night. And, My God. Yeah, and, like, just 
all sorts going on in there. And, but I kept myself to myself and I took my own detox drugs in there. I know I'm not advocating that either, but I knew my turkey far better than anyone else. So I knew what I needed. I knew yeah. what I didn't need. And the last thing I needed was to engage with any. So I just did my own thing in there. Used it as a safe space. Got my head down. Had a rehab to go to after, which was my lifesaver. Yeah. I had an aim. Had something to aim for. And then I went into rehab for six months. And... Um, I remember day one in rehab, and it was like there was a guy in there, day, like an old boy called Jimmy, so he was a good mate. Um, and Jimmy was from Liverpool, he had chronic, well, his chronic COPD, you know, through not burning his foil. And yeah, yeah before I was lucky, I was burnt my foil before you, you know, all get all the, the grease and stuff off it through manufacturing, but he didn't. And he's walking around, we were walking around, he had a tank of oxygen, oxygen with him. And he he went in the day before me, and I'm looking at this bloke like, how have you done 24 hours without drugs? It's like, <laughs> I was like in awe of him. Yeah. Because I, I couldn't remember last time I'd done that. I didn't know. And in fact, I remember going in and going, what do you want? You know, what do you want out of real? I just want a day clean. Just show me how not to take drugs for a day. I did not know how not to take drugs, and that's why I wanted to teach me. Yeah. Wow, that is mad. <laughs> yeah. And I'd spent all two and a half years trying to get in there, and then the first night I was climbing over the wall to get out. Oh, my God. <laughs> and Nicky pulled me off the wall. Oh, my God, <laughs> that's just sat on me. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that mad, though, like, being in addiction for so long? It's like becomes normal but then you can't live without it and it's like you have to learn everything again yeah, everything like it's like you know when a baby learns how to take its first steps or to talk it's like when you do drugs for so many years like at a young age it like stunts you mentally to to that like age and that everything and it's like how do i unlearn this this you know i, th I think you quite i think you're right i think um I, I mean i didn't i was so nocturnal i had to um i had to ask normal people because i don't ask anyone in rehab because there's was up as i i was i liked my last rehab because my counselors were all fucked up than i was yeah. and I, I liked that it was it was good. It does help. It was good because we'd all been through addiction, and the other place that I hadn't, they hadn't, they're like accountants and beauticians that had to go at counselling, and so it was good that I was in a place where everybody had been in addiction of alcohol or drugs, and so I kind of there was so much I didn't have to talk about. There was so much of a conversation that I didn't have to talk about, and I can just talk about well, cut to the chase on a lot of things because. It really worked for me that way, you know. But there's, I've had counsellors that that haven't come from a drug background that had a lot of empathy too. Because for me, what would worked was be able to talk to somebody who had been through what I went through, and my counsellor was good for that because he was a heroin addict as well, just a clean one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because when I look back now. Um, I was a very different person before I went in to what I am now, like very. Um, well, they kept saying in me, my, my last rehab was, um, don't worry, all you've got to do is change everything. Yeah. And I was like, oh, fuck off. And I thought, I wasn't arrogant, but I'd done 
it wasn't my first rodeo either. You know, I was, yeah. um, I did a lot of mutual aid groups for 15 years um, before going to my last treatment centre. And, and, you know, I, I, I learned a lot of people and they were very respectful and they tried to help me a lot. Um, but there was a lot I wanted to keep. There was a lot of um, like a sense of humour. I wanted to keep. I didn't want to change that. I was happy with that. Yeah. You know, it was a self-defence mechanism for many years. You know, I might you not not been using it in the most healthiest of ways, but um, I liked it, and I didn't want to change it. There was a number of things I didn't want to change. I didn't want to lose that sharp junkie thing. Yeah. Right. Because I think, um, like we talked at the beginning, like a disease of obsession, really. And if you look at, I don't know, I'm not liking myself to these amazing people. If you look at, like, Barack Obama, you don't become the first black president of the United States if you're not absolutely obsessed about getting there, right? Yeah, So totally. I, I, I feel, you know, all the kind of the top people in business or maybe, well, not politics in, our, in, our, in the UK, but um, certainly, you know, the, the, the real big hit is real successful people that, that we see. There's loads of successful people we don't see. And yeah. There's different things we're successful in. But the ones that, I don't know, this culture kind of really celebrates, they're absolutely driven. They're tunnel vision. They're obsessed about getting to where they want to become. And I think they have the disease of obsession. It's yeah. just that their disease didn't take them into addiction on, on crack and heroin. Where mine did. Yeah. And I'm not saying I'd be the president of the United States if I hadn't found crack or heroin. <laughs> right. But um, I go for it. Yeah. I throw myself into stuff, you know, and I am tunnel visioned. Back in the day, I would walk through a burning building if I thought there was a 10 bag of heroin in a drawer somewhere. I would not, wouldn't think twice. I'd go yeah. in and get that back. <laughs> I'd walk through walls to get it. And I go for what I want today. You know, I don't run over people or anything, but I, I, apps, I you know, it's happening. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll find a way, you know, and, you know, I'll, I'll find a way. Yeah. And, be, be, you know, for all the right reasons, for all the good reasons. Yeah. But I just think obsessive people, if heroin hadn't, you know, if I hadn't found heroin, it might have been something different, but, um, so there was a, there was a lot in rehab, but, I wanted to keep, there's a lot of stuff I wanted to ditch, you know, yeah. like selfishness and um, just all the quite negative character traits, like really. defect characters, oh, yeah. defects, isn't it? Yeah, it's a defects. I don't think, I've, was I defective? No, I wasn't defective. I just had to live a certain way to survive it. Yeah. It wasn't defects, they're just survival mechanisms. Well, that's exactly what it is, like... It's it's how we've survived. Which happen to be very transferable skills when you get clean and sober yeah. and put into your normal life and used for good. They are fantastic, like superpowers, you know, all yeah. the things we, you know. not saying I'm happy about being addictive for 25 years and certainly not for what I put my loved ones through, but it happened and I'm making the most out of it and I'm using what I learned in my addiction and I'm putting it to good use in in my clean life, really. I think that's amazing. I never got that before until, like, getting to know you personally and having chats with you. Like, I never knew I could use my traits for a good cause 
because I have got some really good still experience qualities, yeah. But using them in a positive way, it's just builds your confidence so much. They might have been horrible, horrible, horrible experiences that like nobody should ever have to go through, but they're still experiences, and yeah. we still learn from them, and we found a way through. Yeah, you know, I I'd give an addict a job any day. Who's more resilient? Who's been what we've been through? Exactly. And, you know, it's like. If I employ you, I know I'm not going to have days off ill. It's like, yeah, they're going to be driven. They're going to be, you know, they're going to know a lot of stuff. They're going to be sharp, sharp, sharp. They're going to, that way. You know, they're going to know things that other people couldn't possibly know. That they couldn't learn out of uni or couldn't learn out, you know, like street smarts, like yeah. just sharp. And, you know, and, and that's, and you know what? I work in a creative industry. And um, my, what we do is tell stories, right? We, we're documentary makers and we're trainers and, you know, we, we're storytellers, right? Yeah. And it's a, one of the oldest traditions, you know, the, the warmest seat by the fire back in caveman days was for the storyteller, right? Yeah, right? They, I like that. Yeah, they got the prestige, everyone. What, you know, they're like, they're like, like Netflix of the day, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so, and and I've, never, I've never met an addict that can't tell a good story. Yeah, that is so true, actually. And I think all the bullshit we've been through and all, you know, even the lies to ourselves. And if you think about a lie, what what's a lie if it's not creativity? You know, you 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 you're inventing something that didn't what wasn't there a second ago you've made you've conjured up some morsel of bullshit out the (laughs) (laughs) you've put your own spin on it and then you're passing it along as real or whatever right so it's a lie but it's creative and you know everything about my life was a lie even lying to myself about how bad my life was not that bad it was really horrible and disgusting uh, um, but everything was a lie. Everybody in front of me, I had to lie to. Over the years, it was um, who've got a lie to today? Oh, okay. On the rare times I had a missus, because I try and get a missus in a dick. No, I try and get a clean missus. But all oh, that sort me out. And then I just had to lie to her about money or where I was or what I was doing. And then I'd get a missus in addiction. All of a sudden, my habit doubles overnight, and I'm paying for her habit. I don't want to do that either. Yeah. So. Or, you know, kind of lying to the police, lying to your solicitor, um, lying to the family. You're always lying. You're always lying, 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 yeah. lying to your dealer, lying to the person in the shop, trying to blag him. Everything's a lie, right? And then you keep up with the lies and what lie does it tell this person? Does it tell Creative. them the same lie that I told this lie to? It's creativity, though. Yeah. Right? And you learn to do it and you create. In my, For me, I feel all these lies rewire your head in a very creative way. Right, so there are just creative pathways built over your lifetime to be able to conjure up stuff and think on your feet very quickly, especially if there's a police station running after you. <laughs> <laughs> right, about, you know, how to get out of a situation or solve that problem or, you know, kind of what's happening. And if you bring that into a creative world, which we're in, yeah, it's like, oh, my God, this is a transferable skill. I don't, have to, I don't have to lie anymore. There's yeah. nothing in my life I have to lie about. In fact, it's a, it's a very nice, simple life, not having to lie. And when, if I do ever lie, which I don't, you know, very often, maybe, you know, to what I'm seeing on the scales or something, but, you know, it does yeah, it doesn't sit right. And before I've told a lie, I've told the truth. So it's one of those things I kind of learnt in rehab, like, or, or got good at, I got good at telling the truth, right? And yeah. that's what we do. We bring, we bring honesty into people's lives, including our own. 
Yeah, because you get a conscience when you get clean. But they've created pathways of gold in our industry. That's amazing, that gold. You know, you can't learn that shit. No. You've done it for so many years. You are creative. If if you're an addict or an alcoholic, you are possibly one of the most creative people on the planet to anyone who's stood in front of you (laughs) to what you've got to tell them to get your drug of choice that day, right? Totally. Right. And that works very well in our world. Too well? Very, very well. Yeah. You know, and in addiction, addiction is one, it's a big problem, right? And everything in your day is a problem, right? And yeah. um, there's a, and in, in my addiction, there's lots of problems. And to find my solution of, I know hand gestures don't work very well on, on radio. I love it. <laughs> but, I'm all about hands. But um, the solution for me was my fix, my bag of heroin, my, you know, that would, what would make me well enough to go and function, to go and get another. And... Film is making films is one great big problem solving exercise. There are just hundreds of problems to make a film, and you're just knocking them down as you go. And it's just correct, yeah, okay, that, and that becomes normal as well. But that's what we do. So, they're very transferable skills, I think, and how to talk to people, how to yeah. interact with people, and you know, kind of on a very kind of honest level. And I'll, I think we do really well because. I don't know, we just get people. We're just interested, so I'm talking about Eternal again. But no, I'm just trying, trying to make the point that I don't feel my addiction was wholly wasted. Yeah. Right? I don't think it was totally wasted. I mean, I'm a big believer in the universe and um, and how the universe works. I'm not a religious person, but I do, I guess I'm spiritual. Yeah. And um, I let the universe, when I rem- remember how to do it, um, I let the universe know what I want. I've got, uh, oh, I've got, I've got a sound effect for the, so I, ha- I have a VW badge on my keyring, right? Yeah. So I had this six years before I actually managed to put a key for a VW. Right? Nice. So I let the universe know what I want. Just things like that. No, I believe that too. I try at the law of attraction, isn't it? Yeah, kind my of. friend Emma talks about yeah. that quite a lot. I've never read it. But the- yeah, you just basically you just manifest like you've manifested yeah. the keyring, and then I, I do it bits of kit we and need. Then you get yeah. and asking you receive, I suppose. Yeah, you know, I, I started selling on the dole, and you know I'd save up for like a four or five pound thing out of you know just make make, make my life easier, you know, for, for like a card reader or something, and then you know put like a, a Mac on the wall and you know stuff like that, but. Yeah, and everything kind of came to fruition through a lot of hard work. It always gives you everything. Yeah. You have to work for it. But they're all transferable skills. I don't feel my my whole life was wasted in addiction because I learned so much. Um, and as long as I can put that knowledge to use for good purposes, I don't feel it was a total waste. I feel I had to do a prison sentence. No, I had to do a couple of prison sentences to, um, to know what it is, to be able to work with people who've been through prison, been through just judicial system yeah um i've been through adversity that nobody should ever have to so i get if people have had a really hard time and i can usually kind of emphasize quite well because of something what's happened to them has probably happened to me as well somewhere in 25 years of just horribleness yeah um because um, i found out that pain is relative that people don't have to have sunk to my depths to for them to have the same thoughts, feelings, and emotions that I had when I was there. Yeah. Yeah, it's 
pain's relative. You don't have to. Pain is pain. And that was another reason I got wanted to get clean. Pain is a great instigator of change. When it hurts enough, I'll do something about it. Yeah. You know, when I just can't go on anymore. And then with the opportunity, with the right people, and that's how it kind of happened. But, um, you know, I felt... You know, even dying a couple of times, well, I know what it is to be brought around by by paramedics. Well, you've experienced it all firsthand. Yeah, it's, I mean, they're tough lessons, but, you know, homelessness, I know I've been there. You know, I know what it is not to have anywhere and have wow. to find somewhere that night and, you know, and not having enough clothes to keep you warm that night and not having much of anything, really. Yeah. You know, that desperation, constant desperation. It's incredible. So it's... So they're not wasted lessons. No, not at all. And my my addiction cost over three million pounds over the twenty five years. Kind of worked out to about three mil. Wow. <laughs> so it kind of it wasn't a cheap it wasn't a cheap education. No. And it was a very painful education, but it's not entirely wasted. Yeah. That's proper inspiring, that you know. <laughs> Honestly. Wow. <laughs> I'm just like, just sitting with that for a minute. Yeah, I guess it's about pulling out what you can out of your experiences, right? And how you can, for, for me, how how can help people with that? How can, you know, how's that going to help me work with people? And it does every day. Yeah. They're transferable skills. That has just proper really inspired me, all that stuff that you were saying then about everything in addiction, all the performances I've put on, all the theatrics, all the murder I've caused, just like all the shit I've chatted to get myself out of even bigger shit, like everything is all led up to this moment. It's not wasted. Do you know what I mean? I've always been theatrical and I've always been creative and I've always been a dramatic drama queen and I can put it to use now in a, for a good cause, in a good way. Like, I can express myself without putting drinking drugs in my system. Yeah. You know what I mean? I can actually, like, be myself. Yeah, and you've been out of this a few times. You're, you're great with people. People are really warm to you, and that's a skill. And it's probably a skill you've learned in your addiction, right? Yeah. It's probably... You know, life's easier in addiction. People like you, right? I'm, yeah. not, I'm not saying, you know, like, but it's just a skill. No, I totally get that. No. We are You're in... very genuine. You know, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that like, it's a mask or anything. Yeah, else. no, thank you. I um, appreciate that. I know exactly what you're saying. I think as um, addicts, we are very intuitive people. We feel, and I'm, I know everyone feels, but like, I feel like we feel like. Yeah, I think, yeah. We feel a lot. I think we're quite sensitive as well. We are very hypersensitive, yeah. I'd say, like very um, empathetic people. Yeah, it's that it's that thing, isn't it? Like you can get on stage and you can have a, like ninety nine people like clap and go, yeah. You've yeah. got one not clapping, like arms folded, and you're zeroed in on it. Yeah. Well, are you clapping? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you just go home, have that resentment yeah. with that person. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's very normal, but I, I, I see it more. Uh, in people who've been through what we've been through that will really cling on to a negative word rather than enjoy the kind of, you know, the compliment or compliments are quite tough to take as well, aren't they? It's mad, isn't it? Like, we hate a compliment, but if you say something negative, no, that's it. Well, I'd, I'd, yeah, I can go back to um, 
little theory about that is like every day I got bad news and addiction. I was I could take bad news all day. Yeah. Like in fact, my I was getting bad news all day. You know, cops not having bail, not, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> dealer not being on or owing them too much money. They won't give me ticket anymore. Um, family getting on to me and something else I've done. Oh God, there's just bad news yeah. all the time, right? Bad news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could take that as long as I've got a bag of smack in me. I've got one to come in me. I'm fine. I can take all you. In fact. I know I'd get in trouble for something, but as long as I got my bag first, it was all right. Yeah, right? that's so it. So I could take took bad news all day. It's not a problem. When I got into recovery, it was very weird taking good news. It's like, what do you mean? You feel like a fraud, don't you? Yeah, it's like, what, what? We are comfortable in the negative, though. I, not anymore, but like I sit with the negative and I feel more comfortable in pain and in misery and put self-inflicted, of course, now, but like so much in, in early like recovery when I was early in the treatment centre, like I would just sit with that negativity, sit with that pain, make it life as hard and as miserable for myself as possible because it felt so comfortable and so familiar. And then getting a compliment, I feel like... I, f I felt like people were winding me up or like having a joke at my expense or like, this is what's going on. Like, where's the hidden camera? Like, this is, are these having me on? Are these winding me up? But there is actually genuine people and I see that now. I can take compliments easier. I mean, it's still a bit hard, but I'm learning to take it a lot more easier and I'm starting to see it myself, you know? Yeah, I mean, earthlings also struggle with taking compliments so i mean earthlings i mean like people who haven't been through addiction we call them earthlings yeah <laughs> we're space cadets right <laughs> i like but, that um but yeah i don't i don't know why i think i think we're just a more sensitive breed and in, in in addiction yeah i think totally. yeah i just think we feel i don't know if we feel more just it hurts more for sure yeah i think that's why we do it in the first place take the drink and the drugs because the feelings are too much, aren't they? And the thoughts, it's all too much. So, kind of like numb it somehow. And that's just what we chose to. to that was the solution. I, I, I guess so. I just really love drugs. Yeah. You know, the, I mean, I went through rehab, and there's a lot of people. I did, I did rehab because this happened. I, I did drugs because you know I, I wanted to feel different, I wanted to do this, or what. For, for one reason or another to I wanted to forget or and like it came around to me he goes why why do you start doing because I fucking love drugs <laughs> you know and apparently that wasn't a that wasn't the answer to give no. but it like so you know if, if drugs weren't fun I wouldn't have carried on doing them they weren't from they weren't fun for a very long time but they were in the beginning yeah yeah awesome. I you know I get that I think I just wanted to change when, you know, when I'm sat, I was sat and <clears throat> I was sat in on my arse, homeless in Bangor. Had a saxophone. Had a mate who bought me a saxophone because I'd come out of prison again, and he bought me a saxophone so I could absolutely, you know, try and not commit crime to the degree I was, and just try and live off, you know, busking. So I was busking, and you know, it was like January mid-January freezing cold and on a Sunday and I was just busking all day and I looked in my box and like 10p in it and it had been raining and I looked back in my box and it was, it was shiny and I 
it wasn't 10 feet, it was 2p. And it's like, oh my God, and I was so ill and I was living in that car park. And so it's like, oh, yeah, shit times. That is I can't remember what heavy. That very soon. Um, it's mad, you know, to think where you've been. You know, like, like the, the places that you've been and the things. I got really good at saxo. Yeah, I'll have to hear you play one time. I've seen it. It's in it's in your room, isn't it? Yeah, I got a couple. Yeah, brilliant. What advice would you give to someone that's struggling with addiction? Like people that are struggling and looking for a way out. Like, what advice would you give to someone? That's like everyone in addiction, right? Well, yeah, to people who are struggling. Like, what's the one bit of advice? Recovery is possible. I think we're testimony to that. Yeah. I was a hopeless, hopeless addict. I didn't know how to stop, right? The one bit of advice is you can get clean and sober. If I can do it, anybody can do it. I was, this is not dramatic. I'm not saying it's for, for a dramatic reason, but out of everybody I knew, out of the hundreds, if not thousands of addicts I've met along the way over the years, I was the worst. I was the worst addict I knew for the lengths to which I would go to get my drug. Yeah. And if I can do it, anybody can do it. But it has to hurt enough, I guess. You have to have enough pain in your life to want to change. You have to do it for yourself, not for your kids, not for your family. You have to be at the end of the road, I would say, for me. And for because I've been to I've been in treatment for my mum or my dad or other people or you know I I went for their sake yeah but because it, it was for them it, it was never for me my last place was definitely for me yeah I basically didn't have anyone left but um, which I will have my family back around me now it's amazing yeah and I seem to be the the one they turn to which is crazy but um, I'm glad I can do something back for them. Um, and with the right help at the right time from the right people, yeah, recovery is possible. It just is. Yeah. You know, and it's such a beautiful world. You know, it's just the the flip side of the coin is phenomenal. You know, from what I think where I was like eight years ago, yeah. just in the depths of hell to, you know, where my life is today. You know, what we're building here, what we've built already, you know, kind of. So what, what would I say is um, recovery is possible and everybody recovers differently. There's as many, there's as many different ways to recover as there are addicts out there. Yeah. So you, you know, find your way. But, you know, totally. we, all, we all kind of start in the same place, I guess, you know, day one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, look. There's enough, you know, if you're in addiction, you know where to get help from as well. Yeah. You just, you just do. There's, you know, I don't even feel, we will put some signposting on this, but, you know, it's your doctor or your drug and alcohol, you know, services. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, 
I don't think detoxes work without anything like a rehab to follow up on. Yeah, you definitely need that follow up. Yeah. And if you look at, I mean, I remember being my first one and they say you're here for six months. I didn't know I was going to be there for six months. And that felt overwhelming to me to be in somewhere for six months. Felt like a prison term. Yeah. And so I thought I'd be there a couple of weeks to be sorted. Well, it, it explained to me, well, it took me a long time to become addicted at the level I was addicted. And it's going to take a long time to undo that as well. Yeah. And it certainly took longer than six months that I was in there. It was, um, you know, it's ongoing. But I've got to think about it. If 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 you thought about six months to set a life, well, think about six months and how long it takes to set a business up. You know, it takes takes like two or three years to actually start getting yourself paid out of a business. Yeah. So six months is nothing. So if you put six months into building your life up into you know the business of life, I looked at it like that. Thought, okay, that's not that much, and I, I dealt with it like a day at a time. It's old cliche, a day at a time. Well, a day at a time. It, well, in the beginning, it was a you know, a minute at a time. Yeah. You know, I got it up to an hour at a time. You know, I got it up to, you know, all right, I'll get lunch out of the way, then I'll go and score. Okay, I've had lunch. All right, well, you know, I'll I'll go afternoon break, then I'll go and score. And then I kept putting these things in my day. Okay, well, I'll get to tea time, and then I'll go and score. Okay, well, I'll go to a meeting, and I'll score on the way back from that. So I kept putting things, and then yeah. all these days rolled into each other, and then it rolled into months, and then, wow, a year, but. Out. a year not a chance yeah and then yeah and then a couple of months will be eight years that's so it just amazing. all but for me it's an absolute miracle yeah you know, a day for me was a miracle you know i was happy at a day i was like i did a day i did a day they do say that when i know this is a bit cheesy but stick around for the miracle i'm like it really is a miracle because I've just got to a year. Oh, congratulations. Um, thank you. It was on April 16th, so like the other week, but I never thought like I'd get to this point, you know what I mean? Yeah, none of us did. <laughs> I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm not waiting that long. Oh my God, like yeah. I've got to wait that long. And then what? And then you do another day and another, and I'm like, oh, well, isn't it like a birthday though? Because they call it your birthday. So is it like, do we get presents and... But it's like, well, no, I'm here. Get a cake. Before I know it, though, I'll get some of them little brownies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It, it is amazing. Yeah. But, yeah, when I was getting... Um, I mean, I'd done rehabs before, and I got before I even got to the station, I scored. You know, the day I came out of rehab, I scored. Every time. Yeah. In fact, the day I came out of this rehab... My um, my dealer from Clan Didno, and I'm in Wrexham, was stood outside the sober house that I moved to. And I'd just been given a grant from, like, back pay from the doll, a couple of grand. wasn't expecting that. So I walked yeah. out of rehab for a couple of grand, a trigger, ammunition. And my dealer was out, happened to be outside the house that I was moving wow. into. And everyone was using in the house as well, drinking. So it wasn't particularly a sober house. But, and he said, hi, oh, Mark, it's what you're after. Not after nothing, clean. And he laughed. And, um, but my, my legs kept walking. So something had changed. It was only because I had a radio project to go to. Yeah. Um, with a, a very fantastic friend that he became a friend called Charlie. Um, um, down in town that had had her 
radio project to go to that my legs kept walking so I knew the power of um what creativity could do for me yeah and um yeah and I failed every time like I scored every time there was nothing down for me when I left rehab so I started Eternal as the now what Oh, okay. Well, I was a very busy addict. Oh, I you know, I never had a day off for twenty-five years. I was, you know, I had all. I'd oh, shit. I was very busy. My days were very full, and I was an addiction. But they were very full, busy days. And well, okay, I got clean. That hasn't changed. I was a very busy junkie, and now I'm, you know, I'm a very busy addict, and now I'm a very busy addict in recovery. So <laughs> now, what do I do? And nothing was down for me. I knew for me selling cardigans to old ladies in like um charity shops wasn't gonna do it no it wasn't gonna keep me engaged it wasn't gonna want me to get out of bed you know no power to you if that's what keeps you clean and sober but it wasn't gonna do it for me not for an hour no there was nothing like this about there's nothing i could go to closest thing we had was, was charlie's radio project and that wasn't on every day it was like once a week and you know <clears throat> but it was something and um, I built Eternal to be the now what? Okay, well, I was a very busy addict. Okay, now what? Well, now you get to do this. You know, you're clean, you're sober, you're not committing crime. You get to do this. You get to hang around, you know, great people at Eternal. But we we start. I started with nothing, you know, just didn't you? I, I agreed to doing... Um, a film for North Wales Police, Simon Shaw. Yeah. I didn't have a camera at the time, didn't have a microphone, nothing. He didn't know that I was straight out of rehab. And um, that's... God, this is a really long interview. <laughs> um, I am just in awe. I'm engrossed with this, so keep going. <laughs> oh, um, when you come out of jail or when you come out of rehab... It should be a sign saying, please mind the gap. Because right? yeah. like, it's a bubble. It's just, you know, especially rehab is a small little bubble. Right? And you, you, you're very much insulated in there. It's very internal looking. You're not really looking outside of yourself or anything. It's very all about you and trying to dig down into, you know, the mechanics of you. Yeah. And when you come out, you don't have that. You don't have any structure. You have nothing. Like, there's, there's nothing for me to come out to. Um, I managed to get a nacro flat because everyone was using in the in the in the dry house, the sober house. Everyone was using a nac um, Tonyo again. Managed to step in and help me get a nacro flat. You know, got a million merits as well. You know, kept it and everything. But nacro is for like ex offenders, um, yeah. and they let me rent a flat off them that happened to be opposite a chemist where the addicts went to in the morning and got the methadone from which was next to a phone box which they then came out of the chemist and phoned their dealer on which was next to a park <laughs> which was next to salvation where they all kind of um waited for the dealer and then you know had a drink and i took the drugs on the park and i went to a salvation army to to eat and uh, so, so i i opened my curtains anymore and that was going on outside my room <laughs> uh, outside my window that's what i 
and I'm I'm dead raw still, you know. I'm just coming out, you know, like day one in recovery, really, because rehab's not really in recovery. Rehab's like in treatment. Yeah. yeah so day one outside is, you know, it's nice to think that you are, but really the the work starts when you leave rehab. Hundred percent. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no one's watching you anymore. No one's piss testing you anymore. It's like, oh, you know, oh shit, I'm free. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh no, bollocks. Um, <laughs> And I was waking up to that every morning and it's only because I had a focus on what I wanted to achieve. And Tony O also got me to do a, a speech, a, well, a talk, a live share to North Wales Police top brass. Simon Shaw, the then Assistant Chief Constable of North Wales, was a real recoverist. He championed recovery in North Wales. He got it on every really level, what you know, what he can do for the person or the family to be in recovery. But he was in charge, I don't know, of £168 million of police budget. And quite a chunk of that was spent on prolific offenders that stole for drugs. Or got in other troubles for, because of drugs. Yeah. Yeah. And and he saw, and alcohol, and he saw that straight away, well, even if on nothing else, even if not on a humanitarian level, um, if we could get addicts to stop taking drugs, if we can get addicts into recovery, it, they wouldn't cost us anything. Clean addicts don't cost anything. They yeah. don't, you know, they're not in our police stations anymore. We're not out chasing them. We're not putting their door through anymore. You know, there's a lot of business there that we have to give to, to do something else. So there's an economical sense here to help people get into recovery and sustain recovery. Yeah. Yeah, sustain's the big one, isn't it? You know, you Definitely. can get into recovery, but bloody hell. To maintain. It doesn't end there. It only starts then, right? Totally. Yeah. So he he had a lot of disillusioned top brass, you know, the, the cops with lots of silverware on the lapels. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I, it's a very different, you know, so... Um, so I'm sat there in the boardroom with all these top cops in there and Simon's kind of running the show and there's, a, you know, Aid Blaze sat next to me. <laughs> <laughs> he's sharing his alcoholic story. Um, Tony's the other side of me. He's telling his junkie story and he's got a very similar story to me. And, um, and then uh, it comes to me, I've got to tell my story. And it's a very prickly audience, you know, it's a tough room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's got all these top cops and you got like proper fuck <laughs> like, it. You know, proper like prolifics. Yeah. Um, and we told our story and the room changed and it went from quite a prickly resistant, like kind of them and us to at the end, after we told our stories, them coming over and using stuff and generally wanting to know more. Oh, and wow. and Simon's idea was to show that even the kind of worst addicts that you can meet, who are always in the revolving door of the police station, which I was, um, again, with the right help at the right time by the right people, recovery is possible. Yeah. So I was, I guess I was proof of that to a very dis disillusioned, low-moraled police force <laughs> that was spending a lot of their time banging people like me up all the time and then banging us up again and again and again, nothing ever changing. Yeah. So he wanted to use us to kind of show that recovery is possible and should be um, promoted and, you know, and the time to kind of really get people is at a low point in the police cells. Yeah, so he wanted yeah. to do a lot of work around that. And... and um, 
And it was great, and you wanted to do another one. It was a success, and I'd done a bit of film before I'd worked in in it a bit, and um, and it was something I wanted to get back to. Even when I was in jail, they had me as their filmmaker, right in the prison film. I was a prison filmmaker, <laughs> not course, um, and um, and I, and I said to him, "It's all well and good, but you know, can't do this every day. Why don't you make a film?" And and he says, have you seen our media team? I said, yeah, worked with them a bit. A bit. And, he got, and he said, um, yeah, they put out stuff like, um, he likened their work to 1980s VHS ransom demand videos from the IRA. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's a and, he said, and, he, and he said, we think you can do a better job. I said, yeah. I said, yeah. And he goes, okay, go ahead, make, make us a film then. And... Um, and I didn't have a camera, I didn't have a microphone, I had nothing, I didn't have a film crew. And I said, okay, well, I want to use it as a training exercise, and I want to use this as a project. What do you mean? Well, so I want a, I want a police film crew. So, you know, kind of, I'm going to go and find the worst addicts I can find, the worst addict alcoholics I can find, <laughs> the worst stories. Because I've been in, in police, I've been in prison, in like these prison drug and alcohol awareness things and you got a couple of old screws at the front who have no no idea about being addicted yeah trying to tell you how not to be addicted right and talking about different things and then you know you got people that are like going yeah but you don't know so i didn't want this film shown in prisons where i thought it might be with anybody being able to say um yeah looking at the screen and then being able to say yeah but i've had it so much worse than you so I, you know, luckily I've got friends in low places. So I, <laughs> I found the worst prolific offenders that were my mates. Yeah. yeah and, and they agreed and we, we made a film and, you know, got a very prickly police force that, you know, got um, three police officers to be my film crew and they learnt a lot about film. But they turned up in bloody uniform, didn't they? So there was oh. no comment interview. <laughs> Interviewing people. In fact, Nikki told, nearly told us where the bodies were buried. And one. Oh, my but God. But we had to do a number of re-interviews with them not in place. And it's very prickly, you know, yeah. beginning. And they, they weren't happy that they were on the project, you know, being seconded to, like, an addict. And But Simon gave us carte blanche of North Wales police force he, we could use. We could use police cars and police stations to film in, and and on one police chase through town of Wrexham, we had all my mates in early recovery. Uh, it's a beautiful moment, actually. I'm still choke up when I think about it. There's a lad called Neil who became, became a good friend. Who's a little, he came a little bit after me, and he got the kids out. He was doing really well, and and you know he's from Milton Keynes, and you know. Bit of white boy attitudes, it's a lot of fun, I really get on. And I had him dressed up in a police uniform, and Neil's prolific and you know, had a hell of a life. And, yeah. and he's there with you know, even the, the tall police hat on, and he's there dressed as a copper, full utility belt, cuffs, everything. A little old lady goes up to him whilst we had a little break from filming, whilst I'm resetting the chase scene. A little old lady goes up to him and asks him time. And, oh, and he starts welling up. He's like, and he, lo- he looks at his clock and he tells this little old lady the time. And, um, and it's a very poignant moment for us all because um, he, 
he felt the level of respect that um, that the public have for for the police, and yeah. it just broke his little heart. This little old lady looked at him like he wouldn't normally be looked at like by, yeah. by a member, you know, because normally all his life he's been looked down upon yeah. by the public, you know, for his scummy smackhead and that. And all of a sudden, he's in this very different position in life where yeah. he's being respected. And yeah, and it's like so. This project that we've taken on has gone from a police training film to being something that we're all getting a lot out of, both sides. Yes. All my mates in early recovery have committed a lot of crime. The police, you know, because it's not just, you know, the, the small three-person, uh, three-officer crew anymore. Now we're involving a lot of police in police stations with cars and, you know, with like one scene, one car leaves the police station, the blues and twos going, another one arrives, could we break it on the way? Kind of give it a prang. Um, but this project's kind of like becoming its own animal, it's becoming its own social kind of thing as well. It's like things are happening, it's like addicts and cops are becoming friends, and like, and it's like, and I see like film is this massive level playing field. It's like, because you've got a load of people from very different backgrounds coming into it and they're all becoming creative. They're all yeah. becoming like a film crew and like a team, like a family. And um, and nobody really knows what they're doing. And that's what's good about it as well, because people are coming in and because no one's really done film before, apart from me, nobody really knows what they're doing. So nobody's got the edge. Yeah. Right. Because they're not they're not with me today to be a copper. They're with me to be a film crew. My mates aren't with me today to be you know um, people in recovery or or you know addicts. They're there to be film crew. Yeah. So they've all got these new roles. They're all thrown together and becoming mates. And we're creating wow. amazing things and doing police chases and um, creating all these scenes and music videos. And the film's called Flipped It. It's on our Vimeo. Um, if you want to watch it. Um, yeah. We'll put a tag at the bottom of the podcast if you want to watch our film, the first film. It become like it, it even had like a bit of a. <laughs> it's meant to be like a police training film. It's got a Ridley Scott opening. It's just <laughs> <laughs> and, That's brilliant. Yeah, and um, so you know, S Simon thought he was getting this training film for raw police cadets. He, he's walking away with like like um, a Ridley Scott film that. Um, through the way, by the way, I met, you know, I meet Peter Norrie, who's a BAFTA winning filmmaker. Wow. Tell, you know, Pete wants to know the story. We get chatting and, you know, he's, what are you up to? I'm making this film for North Wales Police. And, and like, he loves it. And he, he works, you know, top end and you know, Netflix, Discovery Channel, you know, as a director and a writer and a, you know, the most amazing editor for all these, you know, amazingly, you know, industry. He's top of the game. Yeah. Yeah, he's top of the game. Um, and he's working in a world that can be quite dog and eat dog. And he wants to do something wholesome and just something more meaningful. And um, he's on board. I've got a BAFTA winner on. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. And then um, he gets his uncle on board as well, who happens to have a drone. So now we're getting all these beautiful shots in North Wales as well on a drone, like. And um, Simon organises um, Colwyn Bay Theatre and he invites, you know, kind of high sheriffs and um, all these, you know, the good and the great mixed in with people in addiction, people in early recovery, people in recovery and workers from the 
from the recovery field and just all this big mix of people and we're all sat there kind of front left row we've got coppers and we've got addicts all sat together eating popcorn together and um anyway the film gets rolling and you know even even prince charles has written a letter to us to kind of wish us well for it and and so we roll the film and through the film we're like we're getting like standing ovations all the way through it it's like you know like a 50 odd minute film and people are getting up and cheering when when you know when there's been like, a bit of an interview and like, people are like getting really emotional to it and uh, you know there's laughs and crying and emotional stuff and it's it's phenomenal yeah um you know we've worked on it for a long time and you know pete even sent an edit suite up to me to put into my bedroom in in the nacro flat you know to, to so i could get it done i had nothing i had nothing wow. you know borrowed and you know borrowed a camera and um got you know managed to get a bit of a grant through um a vow and uh but you just made they happen yeah and another recovery organization but yeah managed to get the camera to borrow and we put it together on nothing uh, just with a lot of goodwill yeah. oh, and a BAFTA winner <laughs> of course <laughs> and and a cop that says yeah do whatever you want <laughs> that is <laughs> yeah. a boss yeah, and and um, yeah so we got a lot of press attention and um, um, by the end of the film it was like it was just erupting and we all kind of you know the cast and the crew all got stage a bit of a curtain call and Simon was giving out these um, trophy things that he'd had made made up, like um, for everybody who'd been in it. That's so cool. Like awards, like glass awards, and um, and myself, Simon, Pete, and Martin all looked at each other on stage. Well, this can't end here. This is, you know, this is too good. Can't, can't. This can't stop. So we all get together. You know, we go for a meal together after we all did all the cast and crew. So yeah. Coppers and addicts all having a meal together and <laughs> stuff. And it's mental because afterwards, you get, it's such a prickly thing at the beginning between the two sides. And at the end, they're inviting each other to, to each other's christenings and like, the cops inviting addicts to like weddings. And It's mad to think that. It just brings everyone together. Yeah, we didn't want it to end. So um, what can we do? You know, so we got together, let's let's create something and you know and b- between us so we've got simon shaw assistant chief constable we've got pete the bafta winner and at the time we've got martin who's like head of comms for like ICA chemicals kind of thing like i don't know how these people came around me i was just like an addict pretty very new into recovery so it's a load of people that shouldn't really know each other let yeah. alone want to build something together um but we're driven we're all driven still am we want to create something for people, like because we just saw the power of, of what creativity can do, you know. And it, it was keeping me clean. Nothing yeah. else I've done before. It's keeping my mates clean every day. Coming out in a film, coming filming and stuff. So, you know, we managed to with a lot, a lot of work. We managed to create a charity called Eternal Community Media, and we went from there with nothing. You know, we just. Just nothing, a lot of goodwill, a lot of hard work, and managed to build it up for people, you know, and certainly at the beginning for people in recovery. Yeah, 
It's just so... Because there's nothing down for us. There's loads yeah. of stuff. If you're an addict, there's loads to do. There's yeah. all kinds of things you can get involved in. Right? You can go a day out here, a day out there. If you're in recovery, there just wasn't. You know, I mean, yeah. you, you could. You could go out, but then you're stuck around a load of people in addiction. It's like, oh, my God, I'm not strong enough for that. No. So there wasn't a lot down for people in recovery. And so we wanted something for people in, you know, in, in recovery. And, you know, we work with anyone, you know, work with you know, all kinds of demographics now yeah it's you just know, incredible what you do yeah we, you know we, and we're a social enterprise as well now we do lots of stuff you know tr- training for business we had to become a social enterprise as well because we were getting lots of business inquiries for that wasn't fitting the charitable remit anymore so now you know the stuff that fits the charitable remit is for the charity and yeah. the stuff you know the more kind of commercial work like the commercial documentary kind of stuff or the you know, the job centre training, we do training for all kinds of organisations, like management training. God, we do it all! Yeah, literally though. <laughs> it's a lot of fun, you know, and people love it. We do lots of for the NHS, we do lots for Public Health Wales and the prisons and always, you know, if you have a look on our website, we did our client list the other day. Uh, it took Ben, well, I'd say the other day, it took, took Ben, like, weeks to put it together, finding all the logos. We've got, you know, I think the most surreal thing that's happened really apart from like a few you know apart from like the years clean out surreal but yeah I think this, the, one of the weirdest things was looking at a call sheet so a call sheet is um made up by a film company and it tells you what your role is for the day on a on film set yeah um and who's who what they're doing and, you know what, what the day is about so you got a call sheet and on the call sheet so the one I I I pick up is from MGM Studios in California, in Beverly Hills, California. Wow. Yeah, and it, and it says my name on it, um, Director of Photography. <laughs> Bloody hell, that is amazing. Yeah, so it's, um, and then we've worked for Sky News, we've done um, ITV, BBC. Um, so we've got all these, you know, kind of networks that we're doing stuff for and you know as well as all the other stuff so we do very very stuff you know we go all around the uk we, we've done, oh, what did we do yeah last year was an amazing project um a yacht race with kids with early onset psychosis um kids who are like young adults but you know we're doing yacht races and i'm covering yeah. that telling people stories wherever we go we're telling people stories and you know and and the knowledge how to do this has come from ourselves and very much taught by Pete as well, you know, how to unpack. Yeah. You know, so it's, it, we've just got an amazing team of people and now I've got, um, you know, I've been hoovering up the disillusioned youth of Wrexham as well. So now I've got Luke, Ben um, and Sam. And we've got Emma and yourself. So it's, you know, we've got an amazing team. That's brilliant. We've got, we've got Joe, you know, Joe Marston from the jail. She's, yeah, um, she's come on as a trustee, and Joe Clay, social entrepreneur. Um, we've got Jill Whittingham. She she was one of my drug and alcohol counsellors when I was in rehab. And she's <laughs> agreed to come on as therapeutic lead. Um, Simon Shaw's still on, involved, you know. So, well, Simon Shaw's director of the social enterprise, and Peter Norrie, he's uh, the director, and I'm myself, and the MD. And it's like, we, we just work with hundreds of people and we've had i think we got to about last count was 540 people oh we were yeah we 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 
do it out of a nuclear bunker on the outskirts of Wrexham. And we've had 540 people through the doors, through the blast doors of the bunker. And whilst engaged with us, nobody's used um, and no one's committed crime whilst, yeah. whilst engaged with us. So it's like, I don't know anyone else is doing that. No, neither do I. Not, not on the shoestring that we do it on. We're not for profit. No. We don't make a profit. It's amazing. <laughs> And it's all about opportunities, you know, kind of, you know, building that confidence with people and, for, you know, allowing people to explore their creativity in a safe place. And whatever we're doing works. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you've come from adversity or if you're, we've, we've just done, um, we've just done a filmmaker's course for people who work in the NHS. So we've, you know, we had their media team over learning about how to put stuff together um, in a different way. Um, We've had their comms over. We've had, you know, we've had people out of administration or off the hospital floor come over and they love it too. So it's not just for us, it's for anyone. Yeah, and everyone. It's, you know, we're just about to take another building on. So cool. It started from, you know, this is what we scratched out of the ashes of our past. Yeah. You know, we scrapped, this has come from nothing apart from, you know, a lot of hard graft. And I think it's just indicative of when an addict gets busy. Yeah. So you've achieved so much for yourself, like personal things. Um, what are your hopes for the future and like for Eternal? I think all the achievements are definitely because of an amazing team. It's, um, I think, well, the beautiful thing about recovery, there are lots of beautiful things about recovery, right? But yeah. A very beautiful thing about recovery is I can choose who I have in my world nowadays, right? In addiction, yeah. I couldn't. I have to put up with lots of arseholes who wanted something off me or if I needed something off them. Like, lots of horrible, you know, nasty people I had to tolerate. In my recovery, I don't have to. No. So, if, you know, I, I pretty much I just have positively charged people around me that have a lot of great energy and... Uh, it's not that I feed off that, but we, we kind of complement each other. We all kind of feed off each other and bounce ideas off each other and in a really positive, fun kind of environment. And you know, I was so miserable in my addiction. I was fucked if I'm <laughs> going to be that miserable in my recovery. And that's one of the things I wanted to keep in, you know, from, you know, keep that sense of humor and keep, keep that. And it's all, you know, we've been lucky that, we do a lot of fun things. We work really hard, but in a very fun way. Yeah. So the achievements is definitely like a big team that we've all worked to make happen. And there's so much that goes beyond behind the scenes. Like we might be out filming for a couple of weeks, then we're editing for a few months. Nobody really sees that. And all the, the just the work that's involved in putting a course together, a filmmaker's course, you know, there's a lot of graph that goes into it. Yeah. Just, you know, and just arranging it, you know, we've got a gallery exhibition coming up soon of people's work in recovery. And there's so much work going behind the scenes that we're all working on that. It's a big team of people all the time, you've mentioned. Um, so the achievements are shared. Um, incredibly fortunate to have met the people that I've met along the way. And yeah, I've put a lot of hard work in and... and yeah, I've sacrificed a lot for Eternal, but... It's part, it's a big part of my recovery. Do you know what? And, and I got told all the time, you know, when I was trying to set up Eternal, like I had a lot of people saying no. 
And it didn't just happen. Loads and loads of people said no. They, well, I couldn't do it. You know, it's um, um, and it's fair. lots of people in recovery even telling me I couldn't do it. And um, and I say, don't put all your eggs into one basket because I was really focused on building a team. You know, yeah. don't put all your eggs into one basket. I haven't like, got a fucking basket to put anything in. I've come into addiction and with nothing. I came in like, into recovery with nothing. I came out of rehab with the same carrier bag that I walked in with. Um, and, and okay, I'm putting all my eggs into a basket, but at least my basket is a... 1960s Cold War nuclear bunker. Yeah. You know, it's pretty safe. So the aspirations for Eternal, I guess, was always to include more people, to get more people work, to show people the flip side of the coin of life. You know, it doesn't... Life can be what what you put into it. Yeah. You know, and... We give people the opportunities to build things here, you know, whatever, whatever they want to build, not just courses. You know, we'll, we'll create programs, we'll create new things. If someone's driven enough to, you know, make it happen, there's, a, you know, there's those opportunities. So next, we want to buy the building next door. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we can buy it and you can rent it and do it out and create beautiful gardens around here, you know, like a really chilled out place for um, for creative people in or uh, in recovery or, you know, or other people that we're working with, um, create more jobs, create more products, work with more people um, and just help more people. You know, the eternal doesn't stop at the door. You know, we do a lot in the community. We do a lot in our own time with people in recovery. You know, we, we put of our own time into the recovery world last year, I don't know, a few thousand hours and a couple of thousand maybe hours of, you know, of our time personal, not, yeah. not eternal time even, our, our time. You know, we, and you, you can't do that if, if you're not passionate about it. So I'll say, don't care what you're passionate about, as long as you're passionate about something, right? Yeah. Right, um, you know, not, um, extremism, I haven't really got any time for, but passionate people have. And, you know, it sounds like Miss World, doesn't it? I want to help people. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, you know, and I think that's, I think that's what you find when people get clean and sober. They just want to help people. It's the most rewarding thing in the world. Helping others, I'm sorry, but it is the most rewarding and best feeling I've ever felt. Yeah, I think you know, I think it's limited to people in recovery. You know, you, you see somebody like giving directions to somebody yeah. in the street, they feel good about themselves. If I open the door and someone smiles at me, I'm like in the, I feel amazing. <laughs> That's what, you know, my, I'm on, you know, I was, I was taught a program of recovery that if you boil it down into two, the, you know, there are a number of parts to it, but if you boil it down into two, the, you know, the very condensed version of it is stay clean, help others. Yeah. And, you know, Eternal gives me that platform to do it on, you know, definitely helps me keep clean. You know, it's definitely part of my combination. Yeah. And, you know, the amount of people that we help every year is phenomenal, so... Brilliant. And we do that in our own time as well. So I want to create another facility to be able to do new things in with Eternal. Um, 
I guess we all, you know, always need, you know, the thing is with equipment which we use, um, it's very expensive. You know, it's high end gear. Yeah. You know, for the high end films that we make and stuff, you know, it's what we're shooting at the minute, 6K stuff. Um, so it's all top end and the computer's the top end. And that's what we teach at Eternal. It's industry standard equipment. So if you've been training with, with Eternal, you can go down and work in Netflix, like editing suite or something, and you'll recognize it. You go, oh, that's that. Yeah, I know how to use that. <laughs> so, you know, if you're using the cameras that we use, go on down to a film, say, oh, I've, yeah, I know how to use that. So it's like they're all, we teach industry. Who else does that? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, colleges don't do that. Universities don't do that. In fact, we get we get university leavers and to us, and we're you know we're teaching how you know what Peter Norrie's using like in top end TV and film, and they've never seen it. You know, so, wow. So, um, so do more of that. Support more people. Create a new building, new facility, um, and offer you know, more out and do loads more fun stuff, really. Yeah, that's why I do loads of fun stuff with a load of fun, happy, slightly naughty people. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Yeah. I like I, it. I like, yeah, I like people who've got a bit of edge to them, you know, that have had a past. I, I, I like it. They're just naughtier. Yeah. You know, not bad. Just, you know, not dishonest, not bad, not, just a bit of an edge. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so all of that, really. More jobs for more people and more, you know, another facility and just doing loads more good work out there and creating decent, you know, really decent films for decent organisations. and um, Yeah, and us all having a lot of fun along the way and learning a lot. That does sound like Miss World now, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounds like perfect now. <laughs> but it's, and, and because we're autonomous, we're not owned by anyone. You know, yeah. Eternal is Eternal. We're not like an under the umbrella of any other company no. or outfit out there. We kept it autonomous. We've had organisations try and take us over, but we kept it autonomous. What we say goes for Eternal. You know, we yeah. get to work who we want to work with. You know, we do, we're in a position now where we do get to say, actually, no, we don't really agree with your ethics. And we don't really, you know, Eternal's an incredibly ethical place. And we turn where it don't, actually, we, we've had a look at what you do. We, we don't really want to do that. So um, it's an incredibly ethical, wholesome place to work. And it's a lot of fun. It is. And I just want to do more of that. And, you know, that's saying it, find out what you love doing and do more of that shit. Well, that's it. And, and yeah, for me, it's it's eternal and everything we're building here. Amazing. Well, Marcus, thank you so much for coming in and having a chat with me today. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been a long one, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't get interviewed very often. No. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant, though. Yeah, you're really good. And you didn't make me cry. There was tears in your eyes. Of joy. (laughs) You did get choked up at one point. Well, it's difficult not to when you kind of... It's weird, though. I didn't get choked up at all the terrible things that had happened. I got choked up at the joyous things that I found in recovery. That is... 
See, that makes me feel emotional now because <laughs> it's, it's important. Did I make you cry? I think I'm about to cry. <laughs> I've got something in my eye. Oh, I smoke you, Thanks, Mark. Oh, no, you're really good, Caitlin. Fair play. Yeah, thanks for coming in and doing it as well and being the presenter. Oh, I enjoy it The Recovery so Hub. It's brilliant. And just a huge thank you to everybody who supported us over the years. That's clients and uh, volunteers and staff and just everybody. The you know, we've got so many friends that we've made over the years along the way. And Cora and Rachel's done so much behind the scenes for us as well. Um, thank you for everything. Is that a cut? Yeah. Cut. 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 If you've been affected by any of the topics in this episode, please reach out to a trusted contact or seek a professional for support. Thank you all so much for listening to the very end of our first episode. I really look forward to the next time we have Marcus back in the studio to join us for a chat. Next week, we have Jill Whittingham in the bunker. Jill is a drug and alcohol counsellor. She also has first-hand experience with alcohol and addiction and is in recovery herself. Jill talks about her own journey with alcohol and addiction and how she found recovery and how she helps others struggling with addiction and helps through creative projects and making connections with others. Thanks for joining us for our very first episode of the Recovery Hub podcast, Life After Addiction. Hope you can join us next time. Bye for now.